Hi everybody, Carla here, back with part three of Alice Walker's The Color Purple. I hope you're enjoying the reading so far, despite the occasional flub here and there. I see from new Spotify analytics that 4,000 of you are listening to me on the Spotify platform, and I thank you so much for listening. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast for premium content and to reply to the Q&A and or write to me at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. Let me know what's on your must-read classics list. I'm, I'm happy to read it. Also, please, if you would, subscribe to the YouTube channel and also let me know what kind of videos you like to see. You can... Um, reply to the Q&A, as I said, or you can write to me at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. Please stay tuned for Alice Walker, The Color Purple, Part 3. Dear Nettie, so what is it like in Memphis? Shug's house is big and pink and looks sort of like a barn, except where you would put hay, she got bedrooms and toilets and a big ballroom where she and her band sometimes work. She got plenty grounds around the house and a bunch of monuments and a fountain out front. She got statues of folks I never heard of or never hoped to see. She got a whole bunch of elephants and turtles everywhere, some big, some little, some in the fountain, some up under the trees turtles and elephants and all over her house curtains got elephants bedspreads got turtles she'll give me a big back bedroom overlook the backyard and the bushes down by the creek i know you used to morning sun she say her room right close to mine in the shade she work late sleep late get up late no turtles or elephants on her bedroom furniture but a few a few statues spread out around the room she sleep in silks and satins, even her sheets and her bed round. I wanted to build me a round house, say Shug, but everybody act like that's backward. You can't put windows in a round house, they say. But I made me up some plans anyway. One of these days, she say, showing me the papers. In a big round pink house looks sort of like some kind of fruit. It got windows and doors and a lot of trees round it. What it made of? I asked. Mud, she say. But I wouldn't mind concrete. I figure you can make the molds for each section, pour the concrete in, let it get hard, knock off the mold, glue the parts together somehow, and you'd have your house. Well, I like this one you got, I say. That one look a little small. It ain't bad, say Shug, but I just feel funny living in a square. If I was a square, then I could take it better she say. Us talk about houses a lot, how they built, what kind of wood people use. Talk about how to make the outside round your house, something you can see. I sit down on the bed and start to draw a kind of wood skirt around her concrete house. You can sit on this, I say, when you get tired of being in the house. Yeah, she say, and let's put awning over it. She took the pencil and put the wood skirt in the shade. Flower boxes go here, she say, drawing some. And geraniums in them, I say, drawing some. And a few stone elephants right here, she say. And a turtle or two right here. And how us know you live here too, she asked. Ducks, I say. By the time us finish our house, it look like it can swim or fly. 
nobody cooked like Suge when she cooked. She'd get up early in the morning and go to the market, buy only stuff that's fresh. Then she'd come home and sit on the back step humming and shelling peas or cleaning collards or fish or whatever she bought. Then she'd get all her pots going at once and turn on the radio. By one o'clock, everything ready, and she'd call us to the table. Ham and greens and chicken and cornbread, chitlins and black-eyed peas and souse, pickled okra and watermelon rind, caramel cake and blackberry pie. Us eat and eat and drink a little sweet wine and beer, too. Then Suge and me go fall out in her bedroom to listen to music till all that food have a chance to settle. It cool and dark in her room, her bed soft and nice, us lay with our arms round each other. Sometimes Suge read the paper out loud. The news always sound crazy, people fussing and fighting, pointing fingers at other people, and never even looking for no peace. People insane, say Suge, crazy as Betsy bugs, nothing built this crazy can last. Listen, she say. Here they building a dam so they can flood out an Indian tribe that been there since the beginning of time. And look at this. They making a picture about a man that killed all them women. The same man that, that play the killer is playing the priest. And look at these shoes they making now, she say. Try to walk a mile in a pair of them, she say. You be limping all the way home. And you see what they trying to do with that man that beat the Chinese people to death? nothing whatsoever. Yeah, I say, but something's pleasant. Right, say Shug, turning the page. Mr. and Mrs. Hamilton Huffelmeyer are pleased to announce the wedding of their daughter, June Sue. The Morrises of Endover Road are spearheading a social for the Episcopal Church. Mrs. Herbert Eatonvale was on a visit last week to the Adirondacks to see her ailing mother, the former Mrs. Jeffrey Hood. All these folks look happy enough, say Shug, big and beefy, eyes clear and innocent, like they don't know them other crooks on the front page. But they the same folks, she say. But pretty soon after cooking a big dinner and making a to-do about cleaning the house, Shug go back to work. That means she never give a thought to what she eat, never, get a never give a thought to where she sleep. She on the road somewhere for, for weeks at a time, come home with bleary eyes, rotten breath, overweight and sort of greasy. No place hardly to stop and really wash yourself, especially her hair on the road. Let me go with you, I say. I can press your clothes, do your hair. It would be like old times when you were singing at Harpo's. She say, no. She can act like she not bored in front of an audience of strangers, a lot of them white, but she wouldn't have the nerve to try to act in front of me. Besides, she say, you not my maid. I didn't bring you to Memphis to be that. I brought you here to love you and help you get on your feet. And now she off on the road for two weeks and me and Grady and Squeak rattle around the house trying to get our stuff together. Squeak been going round to a lot of the clubs and Grady been taking her. Plus he seemed to be doing a little farming out back of the house. I sit in the dining room making pants after pants. I, I got pants now in every color and size under the sun. Since us started making pants down home, I ain't, I ain't been able to stop. I changed the cloth. I changed the print. I changed the waist. I changed the pocket. I, I changed the hem. I changed the fullness of the leg. 
I make so many pants, she'll tease me. I didn't know what I was starting, she say, laughing. Pants all over her chairs, hanging all in front of the china closet, newspaper patterns and cloth all over the table and the floor. She come home, kiss me, step over all that mess, say before she leave again, how much money you think you need this week? Then finally one day, I made the perfect pair of pants for my sugar, naturally. They soft, dark blue jersey with teeny patches of red. But what make them so good is they totally comfortable because Shug eat a lot of junk on the road and drink and, and her stomach bloat. So the pants can be let out without messing up the shape because she have to pack her stuff and fight wrinkles. These pants are soft, hardly wrinkle at all. And the little figures in the cloth always look pretty and bright. And they fool round the ankle, so if she want to sing in them and wear them sort of like a long dress, she can. Plus, one shook put them on, she knock your eyes out. Miss Seeley, she say, you is a wonder to behold. I duck my head. She run round the house looking at herself in the mirrors. No matter how she look, she looks good. You know how it is when you don't have nothing to do. I say, when she bragged to Grady and squeaked about her pants. I sit here thinking about how to make a living, and before I know it, I'm off on another pair of pants. By now, Squeak see a pair she like. Oh, Miss Seeley, she say, can I try on those? She put on a pair of, of the color of the sunset, orangish, orangish with a little grayish fleck. She come back out looking just fine. Grady looked at her like he could eat her up. Shug finger the pieces of cloth I got hanging on everything. It, it all soft and flowing, rich and catch the light. This is a far cry from that stiff army shit I started with, she say. You ought to make up a special pair to thank and show Jack. What'd she say that for? The next week, I'm in and out of the store, spending more of Suge's money. I sit looking out across the yard, trying to see in my mind what a pair of pants for Jack would look like. Jack is tall and, and kind and don't hardly say anything. Love children, respect his wife, Odessa, and all Odessa Amazon sisters. Anything she want to take on, he right there, never talking much, though. That's the main thing. And then I remember one time he touched me and it felt like his fingers had eyes, felt like he knew he knew me all over, but he just touched my arm up near the shoulder. I started to make pants for Jack. They have to be camel and, and soft and strong, and they have to have big pockets so he can keep a lot of children's things, marbles and string and pennies and rocks. And they have to be washable, and they have to fit closer around the leg than Shook so he can run if he need to snatch a child out of the way or something. And they have to be something he can lay back in when he hold Odessa in front of the fire. I dream and dream and dream over Jack's pants and cut and sew and finish them and send them off. Next thing I hear, Odessa won't a pair. Then Shug won't two more pair just like the first. Then everybody in her band won't some. Then orders start to come in from everywhere, from everywhere Shug sing. Pretty soon I'm swamp. One day when Shug come home, I say, you know, I love doing this, but I got to get out and make a living pretty soon. Look like this is just holding me back. She laughed. Let's us put a few advertisements in the paper, 
she say, and lets us raise your prices a hefty notch and lets us just go ahead and give you this dining room for your factory and get you some more women in here to cut and sew while you sit back and design. You making your living, Seely, she say. Girl, you on your way. Nettie, I am making some pans for you to beat the heat in Africa. Soft, white, thin, drawstring waist. You won't ever have to feel too hot and overdress again. I plan to make them by hand. Every stitch I sew will be a kiss. Amen. Your sister, Seely. Folks Pants Unlimited. Sugar Avery Drive, Memphis, Tennessee. Dear Nettie, I am so happy. I got love. I got work. I got money, friends, and time. And you alive and be home soon with our children. Jereen and Darlene, come help me with the business. They twins, never married, love to sew. Plus, Darlene trying to teach me how to talk. She say, us not so hot. A dead country giveaway. You you say us where most where most folks say we, she say, and people think you dumb. Colored people think you a hick, and white folks be amused. What I care, I ask. I'm happy. But she say I feel more happier talking like she talk. Can't nothing make me happier than seeing you again, I think, but I don't say nothing. Every time I say something the way I say it, she correct me until I say it some other way. Pretty soon it feel like I can't think. My mind run up on the thought, get confused, run back and, and sort of lay down. You sure this worth it? I asked. She said, yeah. Bring me a bunch of books, white folks all over them, talking about apples and dogs. What I care about dogs, I think. Darlene, keep trying. Think how much better she'll feel with you educated, she say. She won't be shamed to take you anywhere. She'll not shame nohow, I say. But she don't believe this the truth. Sugar, she say one day when Suge home, don't you think it'd be nice if Celie could talk proper? Suge say, she can talk in sign language for all I care. She make herself a nice cup of herb tea and start talking about hot oil in her hair. But I let Darlene worry on. Sometimes I think about the apples and the dogs. Sometimes I don't. Look like to me, only a fool would want you to talk in a way that you feel peculiar to your mind. But she's sweet and she's so good and us need something to haggle over once in a while. I'm busy making pants for Sophia now. One leg be purple, one leg be red. I dream Sophia wearing these pants. One day she was jumping over the moon. Amen. Your sister, Celie. Dear Nettie, walking down to Harpo and Sophia house, it feel just like old times, except the house new, down below the juke joint, and it got a lot bigger than it was before. Then, too, I feels different, look different, got on some dark blue pants and a white silk shirt that look righteous, little red flat heel slippers and a flower in my hair. I passed Mr. House and him sitting up on the porch, and he didn't even know who I was. Just when I raise my hand to knock, I hear a crash, sound like a chair falling over. Then I hear arguing. Harpo say, who ever heard of women pallbearers? That all I'm trying to say. Well, say Sophia, you said it. Now you can hush. 
I know she your mother, say Harpo, but still. You gonna help us or not, say Sophia. What it gonna look like, say Harpo. Three big stout women pallbearers looking like they ought to be home frying chicken. Three of our brothers be with us on the other side, say Sophia. I guess they look like field hands. But people's used to men doing that sort of thing. Women weaker, he say. People think they weaker, she say. They say weaker, anyhow. Women pose to take it easy. Cry if you want to, not try to take over. Try to take over, say Sophia. The woman dead, I can cry and take it easy and lift the coffin too. And whether you help us or not with the food and the chairs and the get together afterwards, that's exactly what I plan to do. It get real quiet. After a while, Harpo say, real soft to Sophia, why you like this, huh? Why you always think you have to do things your own way? I asked your mom about it one time while you was in jail. What'd she say? Asked Sophia. She say you think your way is good as anybody else's. Plus, it yours. Sophia laugh. I know my timing bad, but I'd knock anyhow. Oh, Miss Seeley, say Sophia, flinging open the screen. How good you look. Don't she look good, Harpo? Harpo stare at me like he never seen me before. Sophia give me a big hug and kiss me on the jaw. Where Miss Shug? She asked. She on the road, I say, but she was real sorry to hear about your mama passing. Well, say Sophia, mama fight the good fight. If there's a glory anywhere, she right in the middle of it. How you, Harpo? I asked, still eating. He and Sophia laugh. I don't reckon Mary Agnes could come back this time, say Sophia. She was just here about a month ago. You just ought to see her and Susie Q. No, I say. She finally working steady, singing at two or three clubs round town. Folks love her a lot. Susie Q so proud of her, she say. Love her singing, love her perfume, love her dresses, love to wear her hats and shoes. How's she doing in school? I asked. Oh, she fine, say Sophia, smart as a little whip. Once she got over being mad, her mama left her and found out I was Henrietta's real mama. She was all right. So, so she dote on Henrietta. How Henrietta? Evil, say Sophia. Little face always looked like stormy weather, but maybe she'll grow out of it. It took her daddy 40 years to learn to be, to be pleasant. He used to be nasty to his own ma. Y'all see much of him? I asked. About as much as a sea of Mary Agnes, say Sophia. Mary Agnes not the same, say Harpo. What you mean? I asked. I don't know, he say. Her mind wonder. She talk like she drunk. Every time she turn round, it, it looks like she want to see Grady. They both smoke a lot of reefer, I say. Reefer, say Harpo. What, what kind of a thing is that? Something make you feel good, I say. Something make you see visions. Something make your love come down. But if you smoke it too much, it make you feel feeble-minded, confused. Always need to clutch hold of somebody. Grady grow it in the backyard, I say. I never heard of such a thing, say Sophia. It grow in the ground? Like a weed, I say. Grady got half an acre if he got a row. How big do it get, asked Harpo. Big, I say, way up over my head and bushy. And what part they smoke? The leaf, I say. 
and they smoke up all that? He asked. I laugh. Now, no, no, no. He, he sell most of it. You ever taste it? He asked. Yeah, I say. He make it up in cigarettes, sell them for a dime. It rot your breath, I say. But y'all want to try one? Not if it make us crazy, say Sophia. It hard enough to get by without being a fool. It just like whiskey, I say. You got to stay ahead of it. You know, a little drink now and then never hurt nobody. But, but when you can't get started without asking the bottle, you in trouble. You smoke it much, Miss Seeley? Harpo asked. Do I look like a fool? I asked. I smoke it when I want to talk to God. I smoke when I, when I want to make love. Lately, I feel like me and God make love just fine anyhow, whether I smoke reefer or not. Miss Seeley, say Sophia, shock. Girl, I'm blessed, I say to Sophia. God know what I mean. I sit round the kitchen table and light up. I show them how to suck in they wind. Harpo gets strangled. Sophia choke. Pretty soon, Sophia say, that funny. I never heard that humming before. What humming? Harpo asked. Listen, she say. Us get real quiet and listen. Sure enough, us hear, um, what it coming from? Asked Sophia. She get up and go look out the door. Nothing there. Sound get louder. Mm. Harpo go look out the window. Nothing out there, he say. Humming, say, Mm, I think I know what it is, I say. They say, what? I say, everything. They say, what? That make a lot of sense. Well, say Harpo at the funeral, here come the Amazons. Her brother's there too, I whisper back. What you call them? I don't know, he say. Them three always stood by they crazy sisters. Nothing yet could get them to budge. I wonder what they wives have to put up with. They all march stoutly in, shaking the church and place Sophia mother in front of the pulpit. Folks crying and fanning and trying to keep a stray eye on the, on the children, but they don't stare at Sophia and her sisters. They act like that's the way it always done. And I love folks. Amen. Dear Nettie, the first thing I notice about Mister is how clean he is. His skin shine, his hair brush back. When he walked by the casket to review Sophia's mother's body, he stopped, whisper something to her, pat her shoulder. On his way back to his seat, he look over at me. I raise my fan and look off the other way. Us went back to Harpo's after the funeral. I know you won't believe this, Miss Seely, say Sophia, but Mister act like he trying to get religion. Big a devil as he is, I say, trying is about all he can do. He don't go to church or nothing, but he not so quick to judge. He work real hard too. What? I say. Mister, work? He sure do. He out there in the field from sun up to sundown and clean that house just like a woman. Even cook, say Harpo, and what more, wash the dishes when he finish. No, I say, y'all must be, y'all must be dope. But he don't talk much or be round people, Sophia say. Sound like craziness closing in to me, I say. Just then, Mr. Walk up. How you, Seely? He say. Fine, I say. 
I look in his eyes and I see he feeling scared of me. Well, good, I think. Let him feel what I felt. Suge didn't come with you this time, he say. No, I say. She have to work. Sorry about Sophia Mama, though. Anybody be sorry, he say. The woman that brought Sophia in the world brought something. I don't say nothing. They put her away nice, he say. They sure did, I say. And so many grandchildren, he say. Well, 12 children all busy multiplying, just the family enough to fill up the church. Yeah, I say, that's the truth. How long you here for, he say. Maybe a week, I say. You know, Harpo and Sophia, baby girl, real sick, he say. No, I didn't, I say. I point to Henrietta in the crowd. There she is over there, I say. She looked just fine. Yeah, she looked fine, he say. But she got some kind of blood disease. Blood sort of clot up in her veins every once in a while, make her sick as a dog. I don't think she gonna make it, he say. Great goodness of life, I say. Yeah, he say. It hard for Sophia. She still have to try to pop up that white gal she raised. Now her mama dead. Her health not that good either. Plus, Henrietta a hard road to hoe whether she's sick or well. Oh, she a little mess, I say. Then I think back to one of Nettie's letters about the sickness children have where she at in Africa. Seemed to me she mentioned something about how blood clots. I try to remember what she say African peoples do, but I can't. Talking to Mr. Such a Surprise, I, I can't think of nothing, not even nothing else to say. Mr. Stan waiting for me to say something, looking up off to his house. Finally, he say, good evening, and walk away. Sophia say after I left, Mr. Live like a pig, shut up in the house so much it stunk, wouldn't let nobody in until finally Harpo, Harpo forced his way in, clean the house, got food, give his daddy a bath, Mr. Too weak to fight back, plus too far gone to care. He couldn't sleep, she say. At night, he thought he heard bats outside the door, other things rattling in the chimney, but the worst part was having to listen to his own heart. It did pretty well as long as there was daylight. But soon as night come, it went crazy, beating so loud it shook the room, sound like drums. Harpa went up there plenty nights to sleep with him, say Sophia. Mister would, would be all cram up in the, in the corner of the bed. Eyes clamp on different pieces of furniture, see if they move in his direction. You know how little he is, say Sophia, and how big and stout Harpo is. Well, one night I, I walk up to tell Harpo something and the two of them just, just laying there on the bed fast asleep, Harpo holding his daddy in his arms. After that, I start to feel again for Harpo, Sophia say, and pretty soon I start work on our new house. She laughed, but did I say it been easy? If I did, God would make me cut my own switch. What make him pull through? I asked. Oh, she say, Harpo made him send you the rest of your sister's letters. Right after that, he started to improve. You know, meanness kill, she say. Dear Celie, by now I expected to be home, looking into your face and saying, Celie, is it really you? 
I try to picture what the years have brought you in the way of weight and wrinkles or how you fix your hair from a skinny, hard little something. I've been quite plump and some of my hair is gray. But Samuel tells me he loves me plump and graying. Does this surprise you? We were married last fall in England where we tried to get relief from the for the Olenka from the churches and the missionary society. As long as they could, the Olenka ignored the road and the white builders who came, but eventually they had to notice them because one of the first things the builders did was tell the people they must be moved elsewhere. The builders wanted the village site as headquarters for the rubber plantation. It is the only spot for miles that has a steady supply of fresh water. Protesting and, and driven, the Olinka, along with their missionaries, were placed on a barren stretch of land that has no water at all for six months of the year. During that time, they must buy water from the planters. During the rainy season, there there is a river, and they try to dig holes in, in the nearby rocks to make cisterns. So far, they collect water and discarded old drums, which the builders brought. But the most horrible thing to happen had to do with the roof leaf, which, as I must have written to you, the people worship as a god and which they use to cover their huts. Well, on this barren strip of ground, the planters erected workers' barracks one for men and one for women and children. But because the Olinka swore they would never live in a dwelling not covered by their god, roofleaf, the builders left these barracks uncovered. Then they proceeded to plow under the Olinka village and everything else for miles around, including every last stalk of roofleaf. After nearly unbearable weeks in the hot sun, we were awakened one morning by the sound of a large truck pulling into the compound that was loaded with sheets of corrugated tin. Seely, we had to pay for the tin, which exhausted what meager savings the Olinka had and nearly wiped out the money Samuel and I had managed to put by for, for the education of the children once we returned home, which we have planned to do each year since Corrine died, only to find ourselves more and more involved in the Olinka's problems. There is nothing uglier than corrugated tin, Seely. And as they struggled to put up roofs of this cold, hard, glittery, ugly metal, the women raised a deafening ululation of sorrow that echoed off the cavern walls for miles around. It was on this day that the Olinka acknowledged at least temporary defeat. Though the Olinka no longer ask anything of us beyond teaching their children, because they can see how powerless we and our God are, Samuel and I decided we must do something about this latest outrage, even as many of the people to whom we felt close ran away to join the Mbellis or forest people who lived deep in the jungle, refusing to work for whites or be ruled by them. So off we went with the children to England. It was an incredible voyage, Seely, not only because we had almost forgot about the rest of the world and such things as ships and coal fires and streetlights and oatmeal, but because on the ship with us was the white woman missionary whom we'd heard about years ago. She was now retired from missionary work and going back to England to live. She was traveling with a little African boy whom she introduced as her grandchild. Of course, it was impossible to ignore the presence of an aging white woman accompanied by a small black child. The ship was in a tither. Each day, she and the child walked about the deck alone, groups of white people falling into silence as, as they passed. 
She is a jaunty, stringy, blue-eyed woman with hair of the color of silver and dry grass, a short chin, and when she speaks, she seems to be gargling. I'm pushing on 65, she told us, when we found ourselves sharing a table for dinner one night. Been in the tropics most of my life. But, she said, a big war is coming, bigger than the one they were starting when I left. It'll go hard on England, but I expect we'll survive. I miss the other war, she said. I mean to be present for this one. Samuel and I had never really thought about the war. Why, she said, the signs are all over Africa, India too, I expect. First, there's a road built to where you keep your goods. Then your trees are hauled off to make ships and captain's furniture. Then your land is planted with something you can't eat. Then you're forced to work it. That's happening all over Africa, she said. Burma too, I expect. But Harold here and I decided to get out. Didn't we, Harry? She said, giving the little boy a biscuit. The child said nothing, just chewed his biscuit thoughtfully. Adam and Olivia soon took him off to explore the lifeboats. Doris's story, the woman's name is Doris Baines, is an interesting one, but I won't bore you with it as we eventually became bored. She was born to great wealth in England. Her father was Lord somebody or other. They were forever giving or attending parties that were for fun. Besides, she, she wanted to write books. Her family was against it, totally. They hoped she'd marry. Me, marry, she hooted. Really, she has the oddest ideas. They did everything to convince me, she said. You can't imagine. I never saw so many milk-fed young men in all my life as when I was 19 and 20, each one more boring than the last. Can anything be more boring than an upper-class Englishman, she said. They remind one of bloody mushrooms. Well, she rattled on through endless dinners because the captain assigned us permanently to the same table. It seems the notion of becoming a missionary struck her one evening she was getting ready for yet another tedious date and lay in the tub thinking a convent would be better than the castle in which she lived. She could think, she could write, she could be her own boss. But wait, as a nun, she would not be her own boss. God would be boss, the virgin mother, the mother superior, etc., etc. Ah, but a missionary, far off in the wilds of India, alone, it seemed like bliss. And so she cultivated a pious interest in heathens, fooled her parents, fooled the missionary society who were so taken with her quick command of languages, they sent her to Africa. Worst luck, where she began writing novels about everything under the sun. My pen name is Jarrett Hunt, she said. In England, and even in America, I'm a runaway success. Rich, famous, and eccentric recluse who spends most of his time shooting wild game. Well now, she continued several evenings later, you don't think I paid much attention to the heathen. I saw nothing wrong with them as they were, and they seemed to like me well enough. I was actually able to help them a good deal. I was a writer, after all, and I wrote reams of paper in their behalf about their culture, their behavior, their needs, that sort of thing. 
You'd be surprised how good writing matters when you're going after money. I learned to speak their language faultlessly and to throw off the missionary snoopers back at headquarters. I wrote entire reports in it. I tapped the family vaults for close to on a million pounds before I got anything from the from the missionary societies or rich old family friends. I built a hospital, a grammar school, a college, a swimming pool, the one luxury I permitted myself since swimming in the river, one is subject to attack by leeches. You wouldn't believe the peace, she said, at breakfast halfway to England. Within a year, everything as far as me and the heathen were concerned ran like clockwork. I told them right off that their souls were no concern of mine, that I wanted to write books and not be disturbed. For this pleasure, I was prepared to pay rather handsomely. In a burst of appreciation one day, I'm afraid the chief, not knowing what else to do, no doubt, presented me with a couple of wives. I don't think it was commonly believed I was a woman. There seemed some question in their minds just what I was. Anyhow, I educated the two young girls as best I could, sent them to England, of course, to learn medicine and agriculture, welcomed them home when they returned, gave them away in marriage to two young chaps who were always about the place, and began the happiest period of my life as the grandmother of their children. I must say, she beamed. I've turned out to be a fabo as a grandmama. I learned it from the Aukins. They never spank their children, never lock them away in another part of the hut. They do a bit of bloody cutting around puberty. But Harry's mother, the doctor, is going to change all that. Isn't she, Harold? Anyway, she said, when I get to England, I'll, I'll put a stop to their bloody encroachments. I'll tell them what to do with their bloody road and their bloody rubber plantations and their bloody sunburn, but still bloody boring English planters and engineers. I am a very wealthy woman and I own the village Aqui. We listened to most of this in more or less respectful silence. The children were very taken with young Harold, though he never said a word in our presence. He seemed fond of his grandmother and used to her, but her verbosity produced in him a kind of soberly observant speechlessness. He's quite different with us, though, said Adam, who is really a great lover of children and could get through to any child given half an hour. Adam makes jokes, he sings, he clowns, knows games, and he has the sunniest smile most of the time and great healthy African teeth. As I write, as I write about his sunny smile, I realize he's been unusually glum during this trip, interested and excited, but not really sunny, except when he's with young Harold. I will have to ask Olivia what's wrong. She is thrilled at the thought of going back to England. Her mother used to tell her about the thatched cottages of the English and, and how they reminded her of the roof-leaf huts of the Olinka. They are square, though, she'd say, more like our church and school than like our homes, which Olivia thought very strange. When we reached England, Samuel and I presented the Olinka's grievances to the bishop of the English branch of our church, a youngish man wearing spectacles who sat thumbing through a stack of Samuel's yearly reports. Instead of even mentioning the Olinka, the bishop wanted to know how long it had been since Corinne's death and why, as soon as she died, I had not returned to America. I really did not understand what he was driving at. Appearances, miss he said. Appearances. What must the natives think? About what? 
I asked. Come, come, he said. We behave as brother and sister to each other, said Samuel. The bishop smirked. Yes, he did. I let my face, I felt my face go hot. Well, there was more of this, but why burden you with it? You know what some people are, and, and the bishop was one of them. Samuel and I, I left without even a word about the Olinka's problems. Samuel was so angry, I was frightened. He said the only thing for us to do, if we wanted to remain in Africa, was join the Umbelis and encourage all the Olinka to do the same. But suppose they do not want to go, I asked. Many of them are too old to move back into the forest. Many are sick. The women have small babies, and then there are the youngsters who want bicycles and British clothes. Mirrors and shiny cooking pots. They want to work for the white people in order to have these things. Things, he said in disgust. Bloody things. Well, we have a month here anyway, I said. Let's make the most of it. Because we had spent so much of our money on tin roofs and the voyage over, it had to be a poor man's month in England. But it was very, but it was a very good time for us. We began to feel ourselves a family without Corinne, and people meeting us on the street never failed, if they spoke to us at all, to express the sentiments that the children looked just like the two of us. The children began to accept this as natural and began going out and began going out to view the sights that interested them alone, leaving their father and me to our quieter, more sedate pleasures, one of which was simple conversation. Samuel, of course, was born in the North, in New York, and grew up and was educated there. He met Corinne through his aunt, who had been a missionary, along with Corinne's aunt in the Belgian Congo. Samuel frequently accompanied his aunt Althea to Atlanta, where Corinne's aunt Theodosia lived. Those, those two ladies had been through marvelous things together, said Samuel, laughing. They'd been attacked by lions, stampeded by elephants, flooded out by rains, made war on by the natives. The tales they told were simply incredible. There they sat on a heavenly, anti-massacred horsehair sofa, two prim and proper ladies in ruffles and lace telling these stupendous stories over tea. Corinne and I, as teenagers, used to attempt to stylize these tales into comics. We call them such things as the three months in a hammock or sore hips of the dark continent or a map of Africa, a guide to native indifference to the holy word. We made fun of them, but we were riveted on their adventures and on the ladies' telling of them. They were so staid looking, so proper, you really couldn't imagine them actually building with their own hands a school in a bush, or battling reptiles or unfriendly Africans who thought, since they were wearing dresses with linings that looked like wings behind, that they should be able to fly. Bush? Corinne would snicker to me or me to her. And, and just the sound of the word would send us off into quiet hysteria while we calmly sipped our tea. Because, of course, they, they didn't realize they were being funny. And to us, they were very. And, of course, the prevailing popular view of Africans at that time contributed to our feeling of amusement. Not only were the Africans savage, they were bumbling, inept savages, rather like their bumbling, inept brethren at home. But we carefully, we carefully, not to say studiously, avoided this very apparent connection. 
Corinne's mother was a dedicated housewife and mother who disliked her more adventurous sister, but she never prevented Corinne from visiting. And when Corinne was old enough, she sent her to Spelman Seminary where Aunt Theodosa had gone. This was very, this was a very interesting place. It was started by two white missionaries from England who used to wear identical dresses. Started in an English basement, it soon moved up to army barracks. Eventually, these two ladies were able to get large sums of money from some of the richest men in America, and so the place grew. Buildings, trees, girls were taught everything, reading, writing, arithmetic, sewing, cleaning, cooking, but more than anything else, they were taught to serve God and the colored community. Their official motto was, our whole school for Christ. But I always thought their unofficial model should have been our community covers the world because no sooner had a young woman got through Spelman Seminary than she began to put her hand to whatever work she could do for her people anywhere in the world. It was truly astonishing. These very polite and proper young women, some of them never having set foot outside their own small community towns except to come to the, to the seminary, thought nothing of packing up for India, Africa, the Orient, or for Philadelphia or New York. Sixty years or so before the founding of the school, the Cherokee Indians who lived in Georgia were forced to leave their homes and walk through the snow to resettlement camps in Oklahoma. A third of them died on the way, but many of them refused to leave Georgia. They hid out as colored people and eventually blended with us. Many of these mixed-race people were at Spelman. Some remembered who they actually were, but most did not. If they thought about it at all, and it became harder to think about Indians because there were none around, they thought they were yellow or reddish-brown and wavy-haired because of white ancestors, not Indian. Even Corinne thought this, he said, and yet I always felt her Indianness. She was so quiet so reflective, and she could erase herself, her spirit, with a swiftness that truly startled when she knew the people around her could not respect it. It did not seem hard for Samuel to talk to Corinne while we were in England. It wasn't hard for me to listen. It all seemed so probable, he said. Here I am, an aging man whose dreams of helping people have been just that, dreams. How Corinne and I, as children, would have laughed at ourselves. Twenty years of fool of the West, or mouth and roof leaf disease, a treatise on futility in the tropics, etc., etc. We failed so utterly, he said. We became as comical as Althea and Theodosia. I think her awareness of this fueled Corinne's sickness. She was far more intuitive than I. Her gift for understanding people much greater. She used to say the Olinka resented us, but I wouldn't see it. But they do you know? No, I said. It isn't resentment exactly. It really is indifference. Sometimes I feel our position is like that of the flies on an elephant's hide. I remember once before Corinne and I were married, Samuel continued, Aunt Theodosa had one of her at homes. She had them every Thursday. She'd invited a lot of serious young people, as she called them, and one of them was a young Harvard scholar named Edward. Du Bois was his last name, I think. Anyhow, Aunt Theodosia was going on about her African adventures leading up to the time King Leopold of Belgium presented her with the medal. 
Well, Edward, or perhaps his name was Bill, was a very impatient sort. You saw it in his eyes. You could see it in the way he moved his body. He was never still, as Aunt Theodosa was closer to the part about her surprise and joy over receiving this medal, which validated her service as an exemplary missionary in the king's colony, Du Bois's foot began to pat on the floor rapidly and uncontrollably. Corinne and I looked at each other in alarm. Clearly, this man had heard this tale before and was not prepared to endure it a second time. Madam, he said, when Aunt Theodosa finished her story and flashed her famous medal around the room, do you realize... King Leopold cut the hands off workers who, in the opinion of his plantation overseers, did not fulfill their rubber quota. Rather than cherish this medal, madam, you should regard it as a symbol of your unwitting complicity with this despot who worked to death and brutalized and eventually exterminated thousands and thousands of African peoples. Well, said Samuel, silence struck the gathering like a blight. Poor Aunt Theodosia, there's something in all of us that wants a medal for what we have done, that wants to be appreciated. And Africans certainly don't deal in medals. They hardly seem to care whether missionaries exist. Don't be bitter, I said. How can I not? He said. The Africans never asked us to come, you know. There's no use blaming them if we feel unwelcome. It's worse than unwelcome, said Samuel. The Africans don't even see us. They don't even recognize us as the brothers and sisters they sold. Oh, Samuel, I said, don't. But you know, he had started to cry. Oh, Nettie, he said, that's the heart of it, don't you see? We love them. We try every way we can to show that love. But they reject us. They never even listen to how we've suffered. And if they listen, they say stupid things. Why don't you speak our language, they ask. Why can't you remember the old ways? Why aren't you happy in America if everyone there drives motor cars? Seely, it seems as good a time as any to put my arms around him, which I did, and words long buried in my heart crept to my lips. I stroked his dear head and face, and I called him darling and dear. And I'm afraid, dear, dear Seely, that concern and passion soon ran away with us. I hope when you receive this news of your sister's forward behavior, you will not be shocked or inclined to judge me harshly, especially when I tell you what a total joy it was. I was transported by ecstasy in Samuel's arms. You may have guessed that I loved him all along, but I did not know it. Oh, I loved him as a brother and respected him as a friend, but Seely, I love him bodily as a man. I love his walk, his size, his shape, his smell, the kinkiness of his hair. I love the very texture of his palms, the pink of his inner lip. I love his big nose. I love his brows. I love his feet. And I love his dear eyes in which the vulnerability and beauty of his soul can plainly read. The children saw the change in us immediately. I'm afraid, my dear, we were radiant. We love each other dearly, Samuel told them, with his arm around me. We intend to marry. But before we do, I said, I must tell you something about my life and about Corinne and about someone else. And it was then I told them about you, Seely, and about their mother Corinne's love of them and about being their aunt. But where is this other woman, your sister? asked Olivia. 
I explained your marriage to Mr. as best I could, Adam was instantly alarmed. He is very sensitive. He is a very sensitive soul who hears what isn't said as clearly as what is. We will go back to America soon, said Samuel, to reassure him and see about her. The children stood up with us in, in a simple church ceremony in London. And it was that night, after the wedding dinner, when we were all getting ready for bed, that Olivia told me what has been troubling her brother. He is missing Tashi, but he's also very angry with her, she said, because when we left, she was planning to scar her face. I didn't know this. One of the things we thought we'd help stop was the scarring or cutting of tribal marks on the faces of young women. It is a way the Olinka can show they still have their own ways, said Olivia, even though the white man has taken everything else. Tashi didn't want to do it, but to make her people feel better, she's resigned. She's going to have the female initiation ceremony too, she said. Oh no, I said. That's so dangerous. Suppose she becomes infected. I know, said Olivia. I told her nobody in America or, U or Europe cuts off pieces of themselves. And anyway, she would have had it when she was 11, if she was going to have it. She's too old for it now. Well, some men are circumcised, I said, but that's just the removal of a bit of skin. Tashi was happy that the initiation ceremony isn't done in Europe or America, said Olivia. That makes it even more valuable to her. I see, I said. She and Adam had an awful fight, not like any they've had before. He wasn't teasing her or chasing her around the village or trying to tie roof leaf, roof leaf twigs to her hair. He was mad enough to strike her. Well, it's a good thing he didn't, I said. Tashi would have jammed his head through her, through her rug room. I'll be glad when we get back home said Olivia. Adam isn't the only one who misses Tashi. She kissed me and her father goodnight. Adam soon, soon came in to do the same. Mama Nettie, he said, sitting on the bed next to me, how do you know when you really love someone? Sometimes you don't know, I said. He is a beautiful young man, Seely, tall and broad-shouldered with a deep, thoughtful voice. Did I tell you he writes verses and loves to sing? He's the son to make you proud. Your loving sister, Nettie. P.S. Your brother Samuel sends his love as well. Dearest Seely, when we returned home, everyone seemed happy to see us. When we told them our appeal to the church and the missionary society failed, they were disappointed. They literally wiped the smiles off their faces along with the sweat and returned, dejected, to their barracks. We went on to our building, a combination church, house, and school, and began to unpack our things. The children, I realized I shouldn't call them children, they're grown, went in search of Tashi. An hour later, they returned, dumbfounded. They discovered no sign of her. Catherine, her mother, is planting rubber trees some distance from the camp from the compound, they were told, but no one had seen Tashi all day. Olivia was very disappointed. Adam was trying to appear unconcerned, but I noticed he was absent-mindedly biting the skin around his nails. 
After two days, it all became clear that Tashi was deliberately hiding. Her friend said while we were away, she'd undergone both the facial scarification ceremony and the rite of female initiation. Adam went gray at this news. Olivia merely stricken and more concerned than ever to find her. It was not until Sunday that we saw Tashi. She'd lost a considerable amount of weight and seemed listless, dull-eyed, and tired. Her face was still swollen from the half, half a dozen small, neat incisions high on each cheek. When she put her hand to Adam, he refused to take it. He just looked at her scars, turned on his heel, and left. She and Olivia hugged, but it was a quiet, heavy embrace, nothing like the boisterous, giggling behavior I expected from them. Tashi is unfortunately ashamed of these scars on her face and now hardly ever raises her head. They must be so painful, too, because they look irritated and red. But this is what the villagers are doing to the young women and even to the men, carving their identification as a people into their children's faces. But the children think of scarification as backward, something from their grandparents' generation, and often resist. So the carving is done by force under the most appalling conditions. We provide antiseptics and cotton and a place for the children to cry and nurse their wounds. Each day, Adam presses us to leave for home. He can no longer bear living as we do. There aren't even any trees near us, just giant boulders and smaller rocks. And more and more of his companions are running away. The real reason, of course, is he can no longer bear his conflicting feelings about Tashi, who is beginning, I think, to appreciate the magnitude of her mistake. Samuel and I are truly happy, Celie, and so grateful to God that we are. We still keep a school for the, for the littlest children. Those eight and over are already workers in the fields. In order to pay rent for the barracks, taxes on the land, and to buy water and wood for food, everyone must work. So we teach the young ones, babysit the babies, look after the old and sick, and attend birthing mothers. Our days are fuller than ever. Our sojourn in England already a dream. But... All things look brighter because I have a loving soul to share them with. Your sister, Nettie. Dear Nettie, the man us knowed as Pa is dead. How come you still call him Pa? Should asked me the other day. But too late to call him Alfonso. I never even remember Ma calling him by his name. She always said, you're Pa. I reckon to make us believe it better. Anyhow, his little wife, Daisy, call me up on the telephone in the middle of the night. Miss Seely, she say, I got bad news. Alfonso dead. Who? I asked. Alfonso, she say, your stepdaddy. How he die? I asked. I think of killing, being hit by a truck, struck by lightning, lingering disease. But she say, no, he died in his sleep. Well, not quite in his sleep she say. Us was spending a little time in bed together, you know, before us drop off. Well, I say, you have my sympathy. Yes, ma'am, she say. And I thought I had his house too, but looked like it belonged to your sister Nettie and you. Say what? I asked. Your stepdaddy been dead over a week, she say. 
When us went to town to hear the will read yesterday, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Your real daddy owned the land and the house and the store. He left it to your mama. When your mama died, it passed on to you and your sister Nettie. I don't know why Alfonso never told you that. Well, I say, anything coming from him, I don't want it. I hear Daisy suck in her breath. How about your sister Nettie, she say. You think she feel the same way? I wake up a little bit then. By the time Suge roll over and ask me who it is, I'm beginning to see the light. Don't be a fool, Suge say, nudging me with her foot. You got your own house now. Your daddy and mama left it for you. That dog of a stepdaddy just had a bad odor passing through. But I never had no house, I say just to think about having my own house enough to scare me. Plus, this house, this house I'm getting is bigger than Shug's. Got more land around it and it come with a store. My God, I say to Shug, me and Nettie own a dry goods store. What us gonna sell? How about pants, she say. So us hung up the phone and rushed down home again to look at the property. About a mile before us got to town, us come up on the entrance to the colored cemetery. Suge was sound asleep, but something told me I ought to drive in. Pretty soon, I see something look like a short skyscraper, and I stop the car and go up to it. Sure enough, it's got Alfonso's name on it, got a lot of other stuff on it, too. Member of this and that, leading businessman and farmer, upright husband and father, kind to the poor and helpless. He'd been dead two weeks, but fresh flowers still blooming on his grave. Suge get out the car and come stand by me. Finally, she yawned loud and stretched herself. The son of a bitch still dead, she say. Daisy try to act like she glad to see us, but she not. She got two children and look pregnant with one more. But she got nice clothes, a car, and Alfonso left her all his money. Plus, I think she managed to set her folks up while she lived with him. She say, Celie, the old house you remember was torn down so Alfonso could build this one. He got an Atlanta architect to design it, and these titles come all the way from New York. We were standing in the kitchen at the time, but he put, he put tiles everywhere. Kitchen, toilet, back porch, all round the fireplace, in back and front parlor. But... This the house go with the place right on, she say. Of course, I did take the furniture because Alfonso bought it special for me. Fine with me, I say. I can't get over having a house. Soon as Daisy leave me with the keys, I run from one room to another like I'm crazy. Look at this, I say to Shug. Look at that. She look, she grin, she hug me whenever she get the chance, and I stand still. You doing all right, Miss Seeley, she say. God knows where you live. Then she took some cedar sticks out her bag and, and lit them and gave one of them to me. I started at the very top of the house in the attic and I smoked it all the way down to the basement, chasing out all the evil and making a place for good. Oh, Nettie, us have a house, a house big enough for us and our children, for your husband and Shug. Now you can come home because... You have a home to come home to. Your loving sister, Celie. Dear Nettie, my heart broke. Suge loves somebody else. Maybe if I had stayed in Memphis last summer, it never would have happened.
but I spent the summer fixing up the house. I thought if, if you would come any time soon, I wanted to be ready. And it is real pretty now and comfortable. And I found me a nice lady to live in it and look after it. Then I come home to Suge. Miss Seedley, she say, how would you like to come? How would you like some Chinese food to celebrate your coming home? I loves Chinese food, so all of us go to the restaurant. I'm so excited about being home again. I don't even notice how nervous Suge is. She she a big, graceful woman most of the time, even when she mad. But I notice she can't get her chopsticks to work right. She knock over her glass of water. Somehow or another, her egg roll came unravel. But I think she just so glad to see me. So I preen and pose for her and stuff myself with wonton soup and fried rice. Finally, the fortune cookies come. I love fortune cookies. They so cute. And I read my fortune right away. It say, because you are who you are, the future look happy and bright. I laugh, pass it on to Suge. She look at it and smile. I feel at peace with the world. Suge pull up her slip of paper out. She pull her slip of paper out real slow, like she's scared what might, what might be on it. Well, I say, watching her read it, what it say? She look down at it, look up at me, say, it say, I got the hots for a boy at 19. Let me see, I say, laughing, and I read it out loud. A burnt finger, remember the fire, it say. I'm trying to tell you, Suge say. Trying to tell me what? I'm so dense, it still don't penetrate. For one thing, it's been a long time since I thought about boys, and I ain't never thought about men. Last year, say Suge, I hired a man to work in the band. I almost didn't because he can't play nothing but the flute. And who ever heard of a blues flute? I hadn't. The very notion sound crazy. But it was just my luck that blues flute is the one thing blues music been lacking. And the minute I heard Jermaine play, I knew this for a fact. Jermaine? I asked. Yeah, she said. Jermaine. I don't know who gave him that British name, but, but it suited him. Then she start writing to rave about this boy, like all his good points have to be stuff I'm dying to hear. Oh, she say, he little, he cute, he he got nice buns, you know, real band too. She used to telling me everything. She rattled on and on, getting more excited and in love looking by the minute. By the time she finished talking about this neat little dancing feet and get back up to his honey brown curly hair. I feel like shit. Hold it, I say. Shug, you killing me. She halt in mid-praise, her eyes filled with tears and her face crumble. Oh, God, Seely, she say. I'm sorry. I, I just been dying to tell somebody and you the somebody I usually tell. Well, I say, if words could kill, I'd be in the ambulance. She put her face in her hands and start to cry. Seely, she say through her fingers, I still love you, but I just sit there and watch her. Seem like all my wonton soup turned to ice. Why you so upset? She asked. When us when us got back home, you you never seemed to get upset about Grady, and and he was my husband. Grady never bring no sparkle to your eye, I think. But I don't say nothing. I'm I'm too far away. Of course. She say, Grady's so dull. Jesus, 
And when you finish talking about women and reefer, you finish Grady. But still, she say, I don't say nothing. She try to laugh. I was so glad he, he lit out after Mary Agnes. I didn't know what to do, she say. I don't know who tried to teach him what to do in the bedroom, but it must have been a furniture salesman. I don't say nothing. Stillness, coolness, nothingness coming fast. You notice when they left here together going to Panama, I didn't shed a tear. But now, really, she say, what they going to look like in Panama? Poor Mary Agnes, I think. How could anybody guess old dull Grady would end up running a reefer plantation in Panama? Of course, they making bukus of money, say Shug. And Mary Agnes outdressed everybody down there, the way she tell it in her letters. And at least Grady let her sing what little snatches of her song she can still remember. But really, she say, Panama? Where is it, anyhow? Is it down there round Cuba? I saw to go to Cuba. Miss Seeley, you know? Lots of gambling there and good times. And, and lots of color, colored folks look like Mary Agnes, some real black like us. All in the same family, though. Try to pass for white. Somebody mentioned your grandma. I don't say nothing. I pray to die, just so I don't never have to speak. All right, say Shug. It started when you was down home. I missed you, Seely, and you know I'm a high-natured woman. I went and got a piece of paper that I was using for cutting patterns. I wrote her a note. It said, shut up. But Seely, she say, I have to make you understand. Look, she say, I'm getting old. I'm fat. Nobody think I'm good looking no more but you. Or so I thought. He's 19, a baby. How, how long can it last? He's a man, I write on the paper. Yeah, she say, he is. And I know how you feel about men, but I don't feel that way. I would never be fool enough to take any of them seriously, she say. But some men's can be lots of fun. Spare me, I write. Seely, she say. All I asked is six months, just six months to have my last fling. I got to have it, Seely. I'm too weak a woman not to. But if you just give me six months, Seely, I will try to make our life together like it was. Not hardly, I write. Seely, she say, do you love me? She down on her knees by now, tears falling all over the place. My heart burns so much, I can't believe it. How can it keep beating, feeling like this? but I'm a woman. I love you, I say. Whatever happen, whatever you do, I love you. She whimper a little, lean her head against my chair. Thank you, she say. But I can't stay here, I say. But Seely, she say, how can you, how can you leave me? You're my friend. I love this child and, and I'm scared to death. He's a third of my age, a third of my size, even a third of my color. She tried to laugh again. You know he gonna hurt me worse than I'm hurting you. Don't leave me, please. Just then, the doorbell ring. Shug wiped her face and went to answer it, saw who it was, and kept on out the door. Soon, I heard a car drive off. I went on up to bed, but sleep remained a stranger to this night. Pray for me. Your sister, Seely. Dear Nettie, the only thing keep me alive is watching Henrietta fight for her life. And boy, can she fight. Every time she have an attack, she's screaming up to wake the dead. 
Us do what you say the peoples in Africa do. Us feed her yams every single day. Just our luck, she hate yams, and she not too polite to let us know. Every day for miles around, try to come up with yam dishes that don't taste like yams. Us get plates of yam eggs, yam chitlins, yam goat, and soup. My God, folks be making soup out of everything but shoe leather trying to kill off the yam taste. But Henrietta claims she still tastes it and is likely to throw whatever it is out the window. Us tell her in a little while she'll have three months not to eat yams, but she say that day don't seem like it ever want to come. Meanwhile, her joints all swole. She, she hot enough to burn. She say her head feel like it's full of little white men with hammers. Sometimes I meet up with Mr. visiting Henrietta. He dream up his own little sneaky recipes. For instance, one time he hid the yams in peanut butter. Us sit by the fire with Harpo and Sophia and play a hand or two of bid whist while Susie Q and Henrietta listen to the radio. Sometime he drive me home in his car. He still live in the same little house. He'd been there so long, it looked just like him. Two straight chairs, always on the porch, turned against the wall. Porch railings with flower cans on them. He keep it painted now, though, fresh and white. And guess what he collect just because he liked them? He collects shells, all kinds of shells, terrapin, snail, and all kinds of shells from the sea. Matter of fact, that's how he got me up to the house again. He was telling Sophia about some new shell he had that made a loud sea sound when you put it to your ear. Us went up to see it. It was big and heavy and speckled like a chicken, and sure enough, seemed like you could hear the waves or something crashing against your ear. None of us ever seen the ocean, but Mr. Learn about it from books. He orders shells from books, too, and they all over the place. He don't say that much about them while, while you're looking, but he hold each one like it just arrived. Shug one time had a seashell, he say, long time ago when us first met. Big white thing, looked like a fan. She still loves shells? He asked. No, I say, she love elephants now. He wait a little while, put all the shells back in place. Then he asked me, you like anything special? I love birds, I say. You know, he say, you used to remind me of a bird way back when you first come to live with me. You were so skinny, Lord, he say. And the least little thing happened, you looked about to fly away. You saw that? I say, I saw it, he said. Just too big a fool to let myself care. Well, I say, us lived through it. We still man and wife, you know, he say. No, I say, we never was. You know, he say, you look real good since you've been up in Memphis. Yeah, I say, should take good care of me. How you make your living up there, he say. Making pants, I say. He say, I noticed everybody in the family just about wearing pants you made, but you mean you turned it into a business? That's right, I say. But I really started it right here in your house to keep from killing you. He looked down at the floor. Suge helped me make the first pair I ever did, I say. And then, like a fool, I start to cry. He say, Celie, tell me the truth. You don't like me because I'm a man? I blow my nose. Take off they pants, I say, and men look like frogs to me. 
No matter how you kiss them, as far as I'm concerned, frogs is what they stay. I see, he say. By the time I got back home, I was feeling so bad I couldn't do nothing but sleep. I tried to work on some new pants I'm trying to make for pregnant women, but just the thought of anybody getting pregnant made me want to cry. Your sister, Celie. Dear Nettie, the only piece of mail Mr. Ever put directly in my hand is a telegram that come from the United States Department of Defense. It said the ship you and the children and your husband left Africa in was sunk by German mines off the coast of someplace called Gibraltar. They think you all drowned. Plus the same day, all the letters I wrote to you over the years came back unopened. I sit here in this big house by myself trying to sew, but what good is sewing going to do? What good is anything being alive begin to seem like an awful strain? Your sister, Celie. Dearest Celie, Tasha and her mother have run away. They have gone to join the Mbellis. Samuel and the children and I were discussing it just yesterday, and we realized we do not even know for sure the Mbellis exist. All we know is that they are said to live deep in the forest, that they welcome runaways, and that they harass the white man's plantations and plan his destruction, or at least for his removal from their continent. Adam and Olivia are heartbroken because they love Tashi and miss her, and because no one who has gone to join the Embellis ever returned. We try to keep them busy around the compound, and because there is so much sickness from malaria this season, there is plenty for them to do. In plowing under the Olinka's yam crop and substituting canned and powdered goods, the planters destroyed what makes them resistant to malaria. Of course, they did not know this. They only wanted to take the land for rubber. But the Olinka have been eating yams to prevent malaria and to control chronic blood disease for thousands and thousands of years. Left without a sufficient supply of yams, the people, what's left of them, are sickening and dying at an alarming rate. To tell you the truth, I fear for our own health and especially for the children. But Samuel feels we will probably be all right having had bouts with malaria during the first years we were here. And how are you, dearest sister? Nearly 30 years have passed without a word between us. For all I know, you may be dead. As the time nears for us to come home, Adam and Olivia ask endless questions about you, few of which I can answer. Sometimes I tell them Tashi reminds me of you, and because there is no one finer to them than Tashi, they glow with delight. But will you still have Tashi's honest and open spirit, I wonder, when we see you again? Or will years of childbearing and abuse from Mr. have destroyed it? These are Thoughts I don't pursue with the children, only with my beloved companion, Samuel, who advises me not to worry, to trust God, and to have faith in the sturdiness of my sister's soul. God is different to us now, after all these years in Africa, more spirit than ever before, and more internal. Most people think he has to look like something or someone, a roof leaf or Christ, but we don't. And not being tied to what God looks like frees us. When we return to America, we must have long talks about the Sealy, and perhaps Samuel and I will found a new church in our community that has no idols in it whatsoever, in which each 
person's spirit is encouraged to seek God directly, his belief that this is possible, strengthened by us as, as people who also believe. There is little to do here for entertainment, as you can imagine. We read the papers and magazines from home, play any number of African games with the children, rehearse the African children in parts of Shakespeare's plays. Adam was always very good as Hamlet, giving his to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy. Corinne had firm notions of what the children should be taught and saw to it that every good work advertised in the papers became part of their library. They know many things and I think will not find American society such a shock except for the hatred of black people, which is also very clear in all the news. But I worry about their very African independence of opinion and outspokenness, also extreme self-centeredness. And we will be poor, Seely, and it will be years, no doubt, before we even own a home. How will they manage the hostility towards them having grown up here? When I think of them in America, I see them as much younger than they appear here, much more naive. The worst we have had to endure here is indifference and a certain understandable shallowness in our personal relationships, excluding our relationships with Catherine and Tashi. After all, the Olinka know we can leave. They must stay. And of course, none of this has to do with color. And dearest Celie, last night I stopped writing because Olivia came in to tell me Adam is missing. He can only have gone after Tashi. Pray for his safety. Your sister, Nettie. Dearest Nettie, sometimes I think Suge never loved me. I stand looking at my naked self in the looking glass. What would she love? I asked myself. My hair is short and kinky because I don't straighten it anymore. One Suge say she love it, no need to. My skin dark, my nose just a nose, my lips just lips, my body just any woman's body going through the changes of age. Nothing special here for nobody to love. No honey-colored curly hair, no cuteness, nothing young and fresh. My heart must be young and fresh, though. It feel like it bloom in blood. I talk to myself a lot, standing in front of the mirror. Seely, I say, happiness was just a trick in your case, just because you never had any before. You thought it was time to have some, and, and, that's, and that's just not going to last. Even though you had the trees with you, the whole earth, the stars, but look at you. When Suge left, happiness desert. Every once in a while, I, I get a postcard from Suge, her and Jermaine in New York and California, gone to see Mary Agnes and Grady in Panama. Mister seemed to be the only one understand my feeling. I know you hate me for keeping you from Nettie, he say, and now she dead. But I don't hate him, Nettie, and I don't believe you dead. How can you be dead if I can still feel you? Maybe, like God, you changed into something different that I'll have to speak to it in a different way. But you not dead to me, Nettie, and never will be. Sometime when I get tired of talking to myself, I talk to you. I even try to reach our children. Mr. Steele can't believe I have children. Where you get children from? he asked. My stepdaddy, I say. You mean he knowed he was the one damaged you all along? he asked. Yeah, I say. Mr. Shake his head. After all the evil he'd done, 
I know you wonder why I don't hate him. I don't hate him for two reasons. One, he loves Suge. And two, Suge used to love him. Plus, look like he trying to make something out of himself. I don't mean just that he work and he clean up after himself and he appreciate some of the things God was playful enough to make. I mean, when you talk to him now, he really listened. And one time, out of nowhere in the conversation us was having, he said, Seely, I'm satisfied. This the first time I ever lived on earth as a natural man. It feel like a new experience. Sophia and Harple always try to set me up with some man. They know I love Suge, but they think women's love just by accident. Anybody handy likely to do. Every time I go to Harpo, some little policy salesman get all up in my face. Mister, have to come to the rescue. He tell the man, this lady my wife. The man vanish out the door. I sit, have a cold drink, talk about our days together with Suge. Talk about the, the time she came home sick, the little cricket song she used to sing, all our fine evenings down at Harpo's. You was even sewing good way back then, he say. I remember the nice little dresses Suge always wear. Yeah, I say. Suge could wear a dress. Remember the night Sophia knocked Mary Agnes tooths out, he asked. Who could forget, I say. Us don't say nothing about Sophia's troubles. Us still can't laugh at that. Plus, Sophia still have trouble with that family. Well, trouble with Miss Eleanor Jane. You just don't know, say Sophia, what that girl done put me through. You know how she used to bother me all the time when she had problems at home? Well, finally she started bothering me when anything good happened. Soon as she snagged that man she married, she come running to me. Oh, Sophia, she say, you just have to meet Stanley Earl. And before I can say anything, Stanley Earl is in the middle of my front room. How you, Sophia, he say, grinning and sticking out his hand. Miss Eleanor Jane done told me so much about you. I wonder if she told him they make me sleep under their house, say Sophia. But I don't ask. I try to be polite, act pleasant. Henrietta turned the radio up loud in the back room. I have to almost holler to make myself understood. They stand round looking at the children's pictures on the wall and saying how good my boys look and they army uniforms. Where are they fighting? Stanley, Stanley Earl wants to know. They in the service right here in Georgia, I say, but pretty soon they be bound for overseas. He asked me, do I know which part they be stationed in, France, Germany, or the Pacific? I don't know where none of that is, I say. No, he say he want to fight, but got to stay home and run his daddy's cotton gin. Army got to wear clothes, he say, if they fighting in Europe. Too bad they not fighting in Africa. He laughed, Miss Eleanor Jane smile. Henrietta turned the dial high as it can go. Got on some real crazy white folks music, sound like I don't know what. Stanley Earl snapped his fingers and tried to tap one of his good-sized foots. He got a long head, go straight up to straight up, and, and hair cut so short it looked fuzzy. His eyes real bright blue and never hardly blink. Good God, I think. Sophia raised me practically, say Miss Eleanor Jane. Don't know what we would have done without her. Well, say Stanley Earl. Everybody round here raised by colored. That's how come we turn out so well. He wink at me, say, well, sugar pie, 
to Miss Eleanor Jane. Time for us to mosey along. She leap up like somebody struck her with the pen. How Henrietta doing? She asked. Then she whisper, I brought her something with yams so well hid she won't never suspect. She run out to the car and come back with a tuna casserole. Well, say Sophia, one thing you have to say for Miss Eleanor Jane, her dishes almost always fool Henrietta, and that mean a lot to me. Of course, I never tell Henrietta where they come from. If I did, out the window they would go, else she'd vomit like it made her sick. But finally, the end come to Sophia and Miss Eleanor Jane, I think. And it wasn't nothing to do with Henrietta, who hate Miss Eleanor Jane's guts. It was Miss Eleanor Jane herself and that baby she went and had. Every time Sophia turned around, Miss Eleanor Jane was showing Reynolds Stanley Earl in her face. He a little fat white something without much hair. Looked like he headed for the Navy. Ain't little Reynolds sweet? Say Miss Eleanor Jane to Sophia. Daddy just love him she say. Love having a grandchild named for him and looks so much like him too. Sophia don't say nothing. Stand there ironing, ironing some of Susie Q's and Henrietta's clothes. And so smart, say Eleanor Jane. Daddy say he never saw a smarter baby. Stanley Earl's mama say he's smarter than Stanley Earl was when he was his age. Sophia don't say nothing. Finally, Eleanor Jane notice. And you know how some white folks is won't let well enough alone. If they want bad enough, they, they gonna harass a blessing from you if it kill. Sophia, mighty quiet this morning, Miss Eleanor Jane say, like she just talking to Reynolds Stanley. He stare back at her out of his big stuck open eyes. Don't you think he's sweet? She asked again. He's sure fat, say Sophia, turning over the dress she ironing. And he's sweet too, say Miss Eleanor Jane, just as plump as he can be say Sophia, and tall. But he's sweet too, say Eleanor Jane, and he's smart. She haul off and kiss him upside the head. He rub his head. Say ye. Ain't he the smartest baby you ever saw? She asked Sophia. He got a nice size head on him, say Sophia. You know, some people's place a lot of weight on head size. Not a whole lot of hair on it either. He gonna be cool this summer for sure. She folded the piece she ironed and put it on a chair. Just a sweet, smart, cute, innocent little baby boy, say Miss Eleanor Jane. Don't you just love him? She asked Sophia point blank. Sophia sigh, put down her iron, stare at Miss Eleanor Jane and Reynolds Stanley. All the time, me and Henrietta over in the corner playing pity pat. Henrietta act just like Miss Eleanor Jane ain't alive, but both of us hear the way the iron sound when Sophia put it down. The sound have a lot of old and new stuff in it. No, ma'am, say Sophia. I do not love Reynolds Stanley Earl. Now, that's what you've been trying to find out ever since he was born, and now you know. Me and Henrietta look up. Miss Eleanor Jane just that quick, then put Reynolds Stanley's on the floor where he crawling around, knocking stuff over, head straight for Sophia's stack of iron clothes and pull it down on his head. Sophia take up the clothes, straighten them out, stand by the ironing board with her hand on the iron. Sophia, the kind of woman, no matter what she have in her hand, it looked like a weapon. Eleanor Jane start to cry. She always have felt something for Sophia. If not for her, Sophia never would have survived living in her daddy's house. But so what? 
Sophia never wanted to be there in the first place, never wanted to leave her own children. Too late to cry, Miss Eleanor Jane, say Sophia. All us can do now is laugh. Look at him, she say, and she do laugh. He can't even walk and already he in my house messing it up. Did I ask him to come? Do I care whether he's sweet or not? Will it make any difference in the way he grow up to treat me? What I think? You just don't like him because he looked like daddy, say Miss Eleanor Jane. You don't like him because he looked like daddy, say Sophia. I don't feel nothing about him at all. I don't love him. I don't hate him. I just wish he wouldn't run loose all the time, messing up folks' stuff. All the time, all the time, say Miss Eleanor Jane. Sophia, he just a baby, not even a year old. He only been here five or six times. I feel like he'd been here forever, say Sophia. I just don't understand, say Miss Eleanor Jane. All the other colored women I know love children. The way you feel is something unnatural. I love children, say Sophia, but all the colored women that say they love yours is lying. They don't love Reynolds Stanley any more than I do. But if you so badly raised us to ask them, what you expect them to say? Some colored people so scared of white folks, they claim to love the cotton gin. But he's just a little baby, say Miss Eleanor Jane, like saying this supposed to clear up everything. What you want from me, say Sophia. I feel something for you because out of all the people in your daddy's house, you showed me some human kindness. But on the other hand, out of all the people in your daddy's house, I showed you some. Kind feeling is all I have to offer you. I don't have nothing to offer your relations, but just what they offer me. I don't have nothing to offer him. Reynolds Stanley, by this time, is over on Henrietta's pallet, looked like trying to rape her foot. Finally, he started to chew her leg, and Henrietta reached up to the, wind to the windowsill and hand him a cracker. I feel like you the only person love me, say Miss Eleanor Jane. Mama only loved Junior, she say, because that's who Daddy really love. Well, say Sophia, you got your own husband to love you now. Look like he don't love nothing but that cotton gin, she say. Ten o'clock at night and he's still down there working. When he not working, he playing poker with the boys. My brother see a lot more of Stanley Earl than I do. Maybe you ought to leave him, say Sophia. You got can in Atlanta. Go stay with some of them. Get a job. Miss Eleanor Jane toss her hair back, act like she don't even hear this. It's such a wild notion. I got my own troubles, say Sophia. And when Reynolds Stanley grow up, he's going to be one of them. But he won't, say Miss Eleanor Jane. I'm his mama, and I won't let him be mean to colored. You and whose army, say Sophia. The first word he likely to speak won't be nothing he learned from you. You telling me I won't even be able to love my own son, say Miss Eleanor Jane. No say Sophia. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, I won't be able to love your own son. You can love him just as much as you want to, but be ready to suffer the consequences. That's how the colored live. Little Reynolds Stanley, all up on top of Henrietta's face by now, just slobbering and sucking, trying to kiss. Any second, I think she will knock him silly. But she lay real still while he examined her, 
every once in a while, she act like he peeking into her eyeball. Then he sit down with a bounce on top of her chest and grin. He take one of her plan cards and try to give her a bite of it. Sophia come over and lift him and lift him off. He not bothering me, say Henrietta. He make me tickle. He bother me, say Sophia. Well, Miss Eleanor Jane say to the baby picking him up, we not want it here. She say it real sad, like she doesn't run out of places to go. Thank you for all you've done for us, say Sophia. She don't look so good herself and a little water stand in her eyes. After Miss Eleanor Jane and Reynolds Stanley leave, she say, it's times like this make me know us didn't make this world. And all the colored folks talking about loving everybody just ain't looked hard at what they thought they had. So what else knew? Well, your sister too crazy to kill herself. Most times I feels like shit, but I felt like shit before in my life. And what happened? I had me a fine sister named Nettie. I had me another fine woman friend named Suge. I had me some fine children growing up in Africa, singing and writing verses. The first two months was hell, though. I tell the world. But now Suge's six months is come and gone and she ain't come back. And I try to reach... I try to teach my heart not to want nothing it can't have. Besides, she give me so many good years. Plus, she learning new things in her new life. Now she and Jermaine stand with one of her children. Dear Seely, she wrote me, me and Jermaine ended up in Tucson, Arizona, where one of my children live. The other two alive and turned out well, but they don't want to see me. Somebody told them I lives an evil life. This one say he want to see his mama no matter what. He live in a little mud looking house like they have out here called Adobe. So, you know, I feels right at home. He a school teacher too and work on the Indian reservation. They call him the black white man. They have a word that mean that too and it really bother him. But even if he try to tell them how he feel, they don't seem to care. They so far gone, nothing strangers say mean nothing. Everybody not an Indian, they got no use for. I hate to see his feelings hurt, but that's life. It was Jermaine who had the idea to look up my children. He noticed how I always loved dressing him up and playing with his hair. He didn't make it like a mean suggestion. He just said, if, if I knowed how my children was doing, I would probably feel better in my life. The son we stand with is named James. His wife is named Cora May. They have two kids named Davis and Cantrell. He say he thought something was funny about his mama, my mama, because she and Big Daddy was so old and strict and set in their ways. But still, he felt a lot of love from them. He say, yeah, son, I, I tell him they, they had a lot of love to give, but I needed love plus understanding. They run a little short of that. They been dead now, he say, nine or ten years, sent us all to school as far as they could. You know, I never think about mama and daddy. You know how how tough I think I is. But now that they did and I see my children doing well, I like to think about them. Maybe when I come back, I can put some flowers on their graves. Oh, she write me now near about every week, long newsy letters full of stuff she thought she had forgot, plus stuff about the desert and, and the Indians and the Rocky Mountains. I wish I could be traveling with her, but thank God she able to do it. 
Sometimes I feel mad at her. I, I feel like I could scratch her hair right off her head. But then I think she'll got a right to live too. She got a right to look over the world in whatever company she choose. Just because I love her don't take away none of her rights. The only thing that bother me is she don't never say nothing about coming back. And I miss her. I miss her friendship so much that if she want to come back here dragging Jermaine, I'd make them both welcome or die trying. Who am I to tell her who to love? My job just to love her good and true myself. Mr. asked me the other day what it is I love so much about Suge. He say he love her style. He say, to tell the truth, Suge act, act more manly than most men. I mean, she upright, honest, speak her mind, and, and the devil take the hindmost, he say. You know, Suge will fight, he say, just like Sophia. She bound to live her life and be herself no matter what. Mister think all this stuff is what men do, but Harpo not like this. I tell him, you not like this. What Sheila got is womanly, it seemed like to me, especially since she and Sophia the ones got it. Sophia and Sheila not like men, he say, but, but they not like women either. You mean they not like you and me? They hold their own, he say, and it's different. What I love best about Suge is, is what she'd been through, I say. When you look in Suge's eyes, you know she been where she been, seen what she seen, did what she did, and how she know. That's the truth, say mister. And if you don't get out of the way, she'll tell you about it. Amen, he say. Then he say something that really surprised me, because it's so thoughtful and common sense. He say, anybody's guess is as good as mine. But when you talk about love, I don't have to guess. I have love and I have been loved. And I thank God he let me gain understanding enough to know love can't be halted just because some people's moan and groan. It don't surprise me you love Suge Avery, he say. I have loved Suge Avery all my life. What load of bricks fell on you? I asked. No bricks, he say, just experience. You know, everybody bound to get some of that sooner or later. All they have to do is stay alive. And I start to get mine real heavy long about the time I told Suge it was true that I beat you because you was not her. I told her, I say. I know it, he say, and I don't blame you. If a mule could tell folks how it's treated, it would. But, you know, some women's would have... Just love to hear they man say he beat his wife because she wasn't them. Suge one time was, was like that about Annie Julia. Both of us messed over my first wife, a scandalous, and she never told nobody. Plus, she didn't have nobody to tell. And they married her off to me. After they married her off to me, her folks behaved like, like they throwed her down the well or off the face of the earth. I didn't want her. I wanted Suge, but my daddy was the boss. He give me the wife he wanted me to have. But Suge spoke right up for you, Celie, he say. She say, Albert, you've been mistreating somebody I love. So as far as you concerned, I'm gone. I couldn't believe it, he say. All along in there was as we was as hot for each other as, as two pistols. Excuse me, he say, but, but we was. 
I tried to laugh it off, but she meant what she said. I tried to tease her. You don't love old dumb Seely, I said. She ugly and skinny and can't hold a candle to you. She can't even screw. What I want to say that for? From what she tell me, Shook said, she don't have no reason to screw. You own and off like a jackrabbit. Plus, she say, Seely say you not always clean. And she turned up her nose. I wanted to kill you, said mister. And I did slap you around a couple times. I never understood how you and Shug got along so well together and, and it bothered the hell out of me. When she was mean and nasty to you, I understood. But when I looked around and the two of you was always doing each other's hair, I start to worry. She still feel for you, I say. Yeah, he say. She feel like I'm her brother. What's so bad about that? I asked. Don't her brothers love her? Them clowns, he say. They still act the fool I used to be. Well, I say, we all have to start somewhere if us if us want to do better, and our own self is what us have to hand. I'm real sorry she left you, Seely. I remember how I felt when she left me. Then the old devil puts his arm around me and just stood there on the porch with me real quiet. Way after a while, I, I bent my stiff neck onto his shoulder. Here us is, I thought. Two old fools left over from love keeping each other company under the stars. Other times, he want to know about my children. I told him you say they both wear long robes, sort of like dresses. That was the day he came to visit me while I was sewing and asked me what was so special about my pants. Anybody can wear them. I said, men and women not supposed to wear the same thing, he said. Men supposed to wear the pants. So I said, you ought to tell that to the men's in Africa. Say what, he asked. First time he ever thought about what Africans do. People in Africa try to wear what feel comfortable in the heat, I say. Of course, missionaries have their own ideas about dress, but left to themselves, Africans wear a little sometimes or a lot, according to Nettie, but men and women both appreciate a nice dress. Robe, you said before, he said. Robe, dress, not pants, anyhow. Well, he say, I'll be dog. And men sew in Africa, too, I say. They do, he asked. Yeah, I say. They not so backward as men's here. When I was growing up, he said, I used to try to sew along with mama because that's what she was always doing, but everybody laughed at me. But you know, I liked it. Well, nobody gonna laugh at you now, I said. Here, help me stitch in these pockets. But I don't know how, he said. I'll show you, I said. And I did. Now we sit sewing and talking and smoking our pipes. Guess what, I say to him. Folks in Africa where Nettie and the children is believe white people is black people's children. No, he say, like this interesting, but his mind really on the slant of his next stitch. They named Adam some other name soon as he arrived. They say the white missionaries before Nettie and them come told them all about Adam from the white folks point of view and, and what the white folks know but they know who Adam is from their own point of view and for a whole lot longer time ago. And who that, Mr. asked, the first man that was white, not the first man, 
They say nobody's so crazy. They think they can say who was the first man. But everybody noticed the first white man because he was white. Mr. Frown, look at the different color thread a Scott. Thread his needle, lick his finger, tie a knot. They say everybody before Adam was black. Then one day, some woman they just right away kill come out with this colorless baby. They thought at first it was something she ate, but then another one had one, and also the women start to have twins. So the people start to put the white babies and the twins to death. So really, Adam wasn't even the first white man. He was just the first one the people didn't kill. Mr. Look at me real thoughtful. He not such a bad looking man, you know, when you come right down to it. And now it do begin to look like he got a lot of feeling behind his face. Well, I say, you know, black folks have what you call albinos to this day, but you never hear white folks having nothing, nothing black unless some black man been messing with them. And no white folks been in Africa back yonder when all of this happened. So these Olinka people heard about Adam and Eve from the white missionaries, and they heard about how the serpent tricked Eve and, and how God chased them out of the Garden of Eden. And they was real curious to hear this, because after they had chased the white Olinka children out of the village, they hadn't hardly thought no more about it. Nettie say one thing about Africans, out of sight, out of mind. And another thing, they don't like nothing round them that look or act different. They want everybody to be just alike. So, you know, somebody white wouldn't last long. She say, seem like her, seem like to her, the Africans throwed out the white Olinka peoples for how they look. They throwed out the rest of us, all of us who become slaves for how us act. Seem like us just wouldn't do right no matter how us try. Well, you know how niggers is. Can't nobody tell them nothing, even today. Can't be rule. Every nigger you see got a kingdom in his head. But guess what else, I say to mister. When the missionaries got to the part about Adam and Eve being naked, the Olinka peoples nearly burst out laughing, especially when the missionaries tried to make them put on clothes because, because all of this. They tried to explain to the missionaries that it was they who put Adam and Eve out of the village because they was naked. Their word for naked is white. But since they are covered by color, they are not naked. They said anybody looking at a white person can tell they naked, but black people cannot be naked because they cannot be white. Yeah, say mister, but they was wrong. Right, I said. Adam and Eve prove it. What they did, these Olinka peoples, was throw out their own children just because they was a little different. I bet they do that same kind of stuff today, Mr. Say. Oh, from, from what Nettie say, them Africans is a mess. And you know what the Bible say, the fruit don't fall far from the tree. And something else, I say, guess who they say the snake is? Us, no doubt, say Mr. Right, I say white folks signed for their parents. They was so mad to get throwed out and told they was naked, they made up their minds to crush us whenever they find us, same as they would a snake. You reckon? Mr. asked. That's what these Olinka people say. But they say just like they know history before the white children start to come, they know the future after the biggest of them leave. They say they know these particular children and they gonna kill each other off. They still so mad about being unwanted. 
going to kill off a lot of other folk too who, who got some color. In fact, they're going to kill off so much of the earth and the color that everybody going to hate them just like they hate us today. Then they will become the new serpent. And whenever a white person is found, he'll be crushed by somebody not white, just like they do us today. And some of the Olinka peoples believe life will just go on and on like this forever. And every million years or so, or so, something will happen to the earth and folks will change the way they look. Folks might start growing two heads one of these days, for all us know, and then the folks with one head will send them all someplace else. But some of them don't think like this. They think after the biggest of the white folks no longer on this earth, the only way to stop making somebody the serpent is for everybody to accept everybody else as a child of God or one mother's children, no matter what they look like or, or how they act. And guess what else about the snake? What? He asked. These Olinka, Olinka peoples worship it. They say, who knows? Maybe it is kinfolks, but for sure it's the smartest, cleanest, slickest thing they ever seen. These folks sure must have a heap of time just to sit around and think, say mister. Nettie say they real good at thinking, I say. But they think so much in terms of thousands of years, they have a hard time getting themselves through one. So what they name Adam? Something round, something sound like Omatagnu, I say. It mean a unnaked man somewhere near the first one God made that knowed what he was. A whole lot of the men that, that come from before the first man was men, but none of them didn't know it. You, you know how long it takes some men to notice anything? I say. Took me long enough to notice you such good company, he say. And he laugh. He ain't shook, but he began to be somebody I can talk to. And no matter how much the telegrams say you must be drowned, I still get letters from you. Your sister, Celie. Dear Celie, after two and a half months, Adam and Tashi returned. Adam overtook Tashi and her mother and some other members of our compound as they were nearing the village where the white woman missionary had lived. But Tashi would not hear of turning back, nor would, Kat, nor would Catherine. And so Adam accompanied them to the Mbele's encampment. Oh, he says, it is the most extraordinary place. You know, Celie, in Africa, there is a huge depression in the earth called the Great Rift Valley but it is on the other side of the continent from where we are. However, according to Adam, there is a small rift on our side, several thousand acres large and even deeper than the Great Rift, which covers millions of acres. It's a place set so deep into the earth that it can only really be seen, Adam thinks, from the air. And then it would just seem to be an overgrown canyon. Well, in this overgrown canyon are a thousand people from dozens of African tribes and even one colored man, Adam swears, from Alabama. There are farms, there is a school, an infirmary, a temple, and there are male and female warriors who indeed go on missions of sabotage against the white plantations. But all this seemed more a marvel in the recounting than in the actual experiencing of it. If I am a judge of Adam and Tashi, their minds seem to have been completely riveted on each other. I wish you could have seen them as they staggered into the compound. Filthy as hogs, hair as wild as could be, sleepy, exhausted, smelly, God knows, but still arguing. Just because I came back with you don't think I'm saying yes to marriage, 
says Tashi. Oh, yes, you are, says Adam, heatedly, but through a yawn. You promised your mother. I promised your mother. Nobody in America will like me, says Tashi. I will like you, says Adam. Olivia ran and enfolded Tashi in her arms, ran about preparing food and a bath. Last night, after Tashi and Adam had slept most of the day, we had a family conference. We informed them that because so many of our people had gone to join the Embellies and the planters were beginning to bring in Muslim workers from the north, and because it was time for us to do so, we would be leaving for home in a matter of weeks. Adam announced his desire to marry Tashi. Tashi announced her refusal to be married. And then, in that honest, forthright way of hers, she gave her reasons, paramount among them that because of the scarification mark on her cheeks, Americans would look down on her as a savage and shun her and whatever children she and Adam might have, that she had seen the magazines we received from home and that it is very clear to her that black people did not truly admire black-skinned people like herself and especially did not admire black-skinned black women. They bleached their faces she said. They fry their hair. They try to look naked. Also, she continued, I fear Adam will be distracted by one of these naked-looking women and desert me. Then I would have no country, no people, no mother, and no husband, and no brother. You'd have a sister, said Olivia. Then Adam spoke. He asked Tashi to forgive his initial stupid response to the scarification and to forgive the repugnance he felt about the female initiation ceremony. He assured Tashi that it was she he loved and that in America she would have country, people, parents, sister, husband, brother, and lover, and that whatever befell her in America would also be his own choice and his own lot. Oh, silly. So the next day, our boy came to us with scars identical to Tashi's on his cheeks. And they are so happy, so happy, silly. Tashi and Adam Omatangu. Samuel married them, of course, and all the people left in the compound came to wish them happiness and an abundance of roof leaf forever. Olivia stood up with the bride and a friend of Adam's, a man too old to have joined Embellies, stood up with him. Immediately after the wedding, we left the compound riding in a lorry that took us to a boat at the coast inlet that flows out to sea. In a few weeks, we will all be home. Your loving sister, Nettie. Dear Nettie, Mr. talked to Suge a lot lately by telephone. He say as soon as he told her my sister and her family was missing, she and Jermaine made a beeline for the State Department trying to find out what happened. He say, Suge say it just kill her to think I'm down here suffering from not knowing. But nothing happened at the State Department, nothing at the State Department of Defense. It's a big war, so much going on. One ship lost feel like nothing, I guess. Plus, color don't count to those people. Well, they just don't, you know, and never did, never will. And so what? I know you on your way home, and you may not get here till till I'm 90, but one of these days I do expect to see your face. Meanwhile, I hired Sophia to clerk in our store, kept the white man Alfonso, got to run it, but Sophia in there too, to wait on the colored, because 
They never had nobody in the store to wait on them before and nobody in the store to treat them nice. Sophia real good at selling stuff too because she act like she don't care if you buy or not. No scan off her nose. And then if you decide to buy anyhow, well, she might exchange a few pleasant words with you. Plus, plus, she scared that white man. Anybody else colored, he, he tried to call him auntie or something. First time he tried that with Sophia, she asked him which colored man his mama's sister marry. I asked Harple, do he mind if Sophia work? What I'm going to mind for, he say. It seemed to make her happy, and I can't take and I can take care of, of anything that come up at home. Anyhow, he say, Sophia got me a little help for when Henrietta need anything special to eat or, or if she gets sick. Yeah, say Sophia. Miss Eleanor Jane gonna look in on Henrietta and every other day promise to cook her something she'll eat. You know, white people have a look of machinery in their kitchen. She whip up stuff with yams you'd never believe. Last week she went and made yam ice cream. How'd this happen? I asked. I thought the two of you was through. Oh, say Sophia, it finally dawned on her to ask her mama why I come to work for them. I don't expect it to last, though, say Harpo. You know how big is. Do her peoples know? I asked. They know, say Sophia. They carry an own just like you know they would. Whoever heard of a white woman working for niggers, they rave. She tell them, whoever heard of somebody like Sophia working for trash? She bring Reynolds Stanley with her? I asked. Henrietta say she don't mind him. Well, say Harpo, I'm satisfied if, if her men folks against her helping you, she gon' quit. Let her quit, say Sophia. It not my salvation she working for. And if she don't learn she got to face judgment for herself, she won't even have live. Well, you got me behind you anyway, say Harpo. And I loves every judgment you ever made. He move up and kiss her where her nose was stitched. Sophia toss her head, everybody learned something in life, she say, and they laugh. Speaking of learning, Mr. Say one day us was sewing out on the porch. I first started to learn all them days ago I used to sit up there on my porch, staring out across the railing. Just miserable, that's what I was, and I couldn't understand why us have life at all if all it can do most times is make us feel bad. All I ever wanted in life was Suge Avery, he say. And one while, all she wanted in life was me. Well, us couldn't have each other, he say. I got Annie Julia, then you, and them rotten children. She got Grady, and who know who else. But still, look like she come out better than me. A lot of people love Suge, but nobody but Suge loved me. Hard not to love Shook, I say. She knows how to love somebody back. I tried to do something about my children after you left me, but by that time it was too late. Bub come come with me for, for two weeks, stole all my money, laid up on the porch drunk. My girls so far into men's and religion, they, they can't hardly talk. Every time they open their mouth, some kind of plea come out. Near about to broke my sorry heart. If you know your heart sorry, I say, that mean it, it not quite as spoilt as you think. Anyhow, he say, you know how it is. You asked yourself one question, it lead to 15. I start to wonder why us need love, why us suffer, why us black, why us men and women. 
where do children really come from? It didn't take long to realize I, I didn't hardly know nothing. And that if you asked yourself why you black or a man or a woman or a bush, it, it don't mean nothing if you don't ask why you here, period. So what you think, I asked. I think us here to wonder myself, to wonder, to ask, and that in wondering about the big things and asking about the big things, you learn about the little ones almost by accident. But you never know nothing more about the big things than, than you started out with. The more I wonder, he say, the more I love. And people start to love you back, I bet, I say. They do, he say, surprise. Harpo seemed to love me, Sophia and the children. I think even old evil Henrietta loved me a little bit, but that's cause she knows she's just as big a mystery to me as the man in the moon. Mister is busy patterning a shirt for folks to wear with my pants. Got to have pockets, he say. Got to have loose sleeves and definitely you not supposed to wear it with no tie. Folks wearing ties look like they being lynch. And then... Just when I know I can live content without Shug, just when Mr. Dunn asked me to marry him again, this time in the spirit as well as in the fret in the flesh, and just after I say, no, I still don't like frogs, but let's us just be friends. Shug write me, she coming home. Now, is, is this life or not? I'd be so calm. If she come, I'd be happy. If she don't, I'd be content. And then I figure this the lesson I was supposed to learn. Oh, Seely, she say, stepping out of the car dressed like a movie star. I missed you more than I miss my own mama. Us hug. Come on in, I say. Oh, the house looks so nice, she say, when us get to her room. You know I love pink. Got you some elephants and turtles coming too, I say. Where's your room, she asked. Down the hall, I say. Let's go see it, she say. Well, here it is, I say, standing in the door. Everything in my room purple and red's up the floor, that painted bright yellow. She go right to the little purple frog perch on my mantelpiece. What's this, she asked. Oh, I say, a little something Albert Carr for me. She look at me funny for a minute. I look at her, then us laugh. Where Jermaine at? I asked. In college, she say. Wilberforce? Can't let all that talent go to waste. Us through, though, she say. He just feel like family now, like, like a son, maybe a grandson. What you and Albert been up to? She asked. Nothing much, I say. She say, I know Albert, and I bet he been up to something with you looking as fine as you look. Us so. I say, make an idle conversation. How idle, she asked. What do you know, I think. Should jealous. I have a good mind to make up a story just to make her feel bad. But I don't. Us talk about you, I say. How much us love you. She smiled. Come put her head on my breast. Let out a long breath. Your sister, Celie. Dear God, dear stars, dear trees, dear sky, dear peoples, dear everything, dear God, thank you for bringing my sister Nettie and our children home. 
Wonder who that coming yonder, asked Albert, looking up the road. Us can see the dust just a-flying. Me and him and Suge sitting out on the porch after dinner, talking, not talking, rocking and fanning flies. Suge mentioned she don't want to sing in public no more. Well, maybe a night or two at Harpo's. Think maybe she retire. Albert say he want her to try on his new shirt. I talk about Henrietta, Sophia, my garden and the store, how things doing generally. So much in the habit of sewing something, I, I stitch up a bunch of scraps, try to see what I can make. The weather cool for the last for the last part of June, and sitting on the porch with Albert and Suge feel real pleasant. Next week be the 4th of July, and us plan a big family reunion outdoors here at my house. Just hope the cool weather hold. Could be the mailman, I say, except he driving a little fast. Could be Sophia, say Suge. You know she drive like a maniac. Could be Harpo, say Albert, but it not. By now the cars stop under the trees in the yard and all these people dressed like old folks get out. A big, tall, white-haired man with a backward, with a backward turn, white collar. A little dumpity woman with her gray hair and plaits across the top of her head. A tall, youngish man and, and two robust-looking youngish women. The white-haired man say something to the to the driver of the car, and the car leave. They all stand down there at the edge of the drive, surrounded by boxes and bags and all kinds of stuff. By now, my heart is in my mouth, and I can't move. It's Nettie, Albert say, getting up. All the people down by the drive look up at us. They look at the house, the yard, Suge and Albert's cars. They look round at the fields. Then they commence to walk up real slow, to walk toward the house. I'm so scared, I don't know what to do. Feel like my mind's stuck. I try to speak, nothing come. Try to get up, almost fall. Suge reach down and give me a helping hand. Albert press me on the arm. When Nettie's foot came down on the porch, I almost die. I stand swaying between Albert and Suge. Nettie stands swaying between Samuel, and I reckon it must be Adam. Then both us start to moan and cry. Us totter toward each other like us used to do when us was babies. Then us feel so weak when us touch. Us knock each other down. But what us care? Us sit and lay there on the porch inside each other's arms. After a while, she say, Seely, and I say, Nettie. Little bit more time pass. Us look round at a lot of people's knees. Nettie never let go my wrist. This my husband, Samuel, she say, pointing up. These are our children, Olivia and Adam, and this, this Adam's wife, Tashi, she say. I point up at my peoples. This Shug and Albert, I say. Everybody say, pleased to meet you. Then Shug and Albert start to hug everybody, one after, one after the other. Everybody say, pleased to meet you. Me, me and Nettie finally get up off the porch, and, and I hug my children, and I hug Tashi. Then I hug Samuel. Why us always have family reunion on July 4th, say Henrietta, mouth poke out, full of complaint. It's so hot. White people busy celebrating their independence from England July 4th, say Harpo, so most black folks don't, don't have to work. Us can spend the day celebrating each other. Ah, Harpo, say Mary Agnes, sipping some lemonade. I didn't know you knowed history. 
She and Sophia working together on the potato salad. Mary Agnes come back home to, to live with her sister and her ma. They gonna look after Susie Q while she work. She got a lot of new songs, she say, and not too knocked out to sing them. After a while, being with Grady, I couldn't think, she say. Plus, he not a good influence for no child. Course, I wasn't either, she say, smoking so much reefer. Everybody make a lot of miration over Tashi. People look at her and Adam scars like they, like, like that's their business. Say, they never suspect African ladies could look so good. They make a fine couple. Speak a little funny, but us getting used to it. What's your people love best to eat over there in Africa? Us asked. She sort of blush and say, barbecue? Everybody laugh and, and stuff her with one more piece. I feel a little peculiar around the children. For one thing, they groan. And I see they think me and Nettie and Suge and Albert and Samuel and Harpo and Sophia and Jack and Odessa real old and don't know much about what's going on. But I don't think us feel old at all and us so happy. Matter of fact, I think this the youngest us ever felt. Amen. And that is the end of Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Thank you guys so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I hope you enjoyed the reading. Until next time. <laughs>